You're listening to a DM podcast. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, adman and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Fairweather describes himself as a recovering architect. An Archibald Prize finalist, he's as multi-talented as he is modest. Paul's passion is to get people to reconnect with their creative essence, and importantly to clarify that artistry is not creativity, it's only a subset. It was a delight to hear him take the challenge. So, Paul, welcome to Five of My Life. Great to be here, Nigel. Have you listened to any of the other episodes? I have, uh, and I've just listened to the one you sent me on Ross Fitzgerald, and uh, I have read his book, so that was really interesting. Uh, and did you read that previously, or did you read it because of the episode? No, no, I read it previously. Now, before we get into your five, um, I, I have a question for you, uh, yes. because you describe yourself as a multi-potentialite. Have I pronounced that rightly? That's correct, yes. Excellent. What the hell is that? <laughs> Look, um, I, I've had at times people refer to me as a Renaissance man. And I didn't like that. I thought that was a bit too highfalutin. So I came across this word of multi-potentialite as really, you know, someone who has many and varied interests in, in life and work. So that's, that's me. Um, some people would say, might say I have ADHD, but... Um, <laughs> I like to think of it as being a multi-potentialite. Is it a made-up word or is it a, a no, real No, no, it's a, it's a real word. And I discovered it. I read it somewhere and I went, that's me. That's wow. the word I'm going to use. Okay. Oh, well, I like that. Well, listen, we're going to find out how true it is as we go through your five, mate. Fantastic. Uh, now, on Five of My Life, we uh, always start with the film. Yep. And you've chosen uh, Drowning by Numbers by Peter Greenway, 1988. Yep. Uh, and... I am so conflicted about this film. Right. <laughs> so it's the five of your life, not the five of my <laughs> life. So tell us your story on Five of My Life about why you've chosen Drowning by Numbers. Look, I, I love Drowning by Numbers, in particular one scene. And I love Peter Greenaway. I don't know if you know much of Peter. He, he was trained as an architectural draftsman and got into filmmaking. And his early ones are very obscure, and his, I think his latest ones were, were obscure as well. But he had this sort of thing in the middle, and he had a big hit with um, the, the wife, the thief, the cook, the lover. But Drowning by Numbers, there's this one particular scene, and it's of a picnic, and they're playing a game, Dead Man's Cricket. And there's a house on top of a hill, and it's like a little Queensland, a pyramid roof. And it's got these huge white sort of sheets, uh, blinds or something that are flapping in the breeze and there's coloured bunting and there's all these kids running around playing this crazy game and there's a narrator, you know, and it's really, really complex, you know, and it's just like so much fun, you know, and it's really hard to actually even focus on what the rules of the game are because there's so much happening visually. Um, and I think it's that sort of visual combination of, of a story, you know, this, this amazing image of this house and this party 
And it sort of goes to, I think, what Peter Greenaway is really amazing at. And I don't know if you've watched uh, the draftsman's contract, um, but in that there's a, a, a uh, the actor, the main actor is an artist who draws these uh, scenes from a mid-period garden party. But the story is that Peter Greenaway couldn't find anyone to do those drawings to his liking, so he did them himself, which I think is just absolutely remarkable. So it's really about that sort of, you know, sort of slight craziness. And it's just a sort of, I suppose, the obscurity about it that I really love and that visual imagery of uh, Dead Man's Cricket. And it's quite a dark film. I mean, basically, four blokes get murdered. Yes, yes. Oh, well, that's that's to the side. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I, I am conflicted. On, on, on one level, I think it's a work of genius that you could watch hundreds of times and it... it uh, always reveal something extra just like the counting down there's there's a hundred numbers yeah, and they yeah. are revealed sequentially throughout yeah. the film uh, there is and the michael nineman music it's it's just sensational but on another level i think it's self-indulgent toss <laughs> <laughs> well look you know i i remember someone saying to me that you know all art is self-referential in some degree you know so you're probably right, uh, but I just think it's such a such a sort of a, a quirky, you know, amazing thing, and you know, the girl skipping and counting, and like there's so many sort of powerful visual images in there. Yes, yeah, so I, I disappeared down a rabbit hole watching and reading about Greenaway, and absolutely fascinating because what he is not doing is wanting to provide an hour and a half, two hours of just sort of popcorn entertainment which is yes. perfectly fine. That's what, you know, most filmmakers do, and that's, and that's great. But he's not doing a rom-com or a thriller. He's deliberately doing complex, obscure, too clever by half, you know, art. So you, you have, And when he's interviewed about film, it's absolutely fascinating. He goes, he thinks film, it's not his love. He doesn't watch film, and he thinks film hasn't evolved. He thinks most of it is rubbish, because everyone is sort of lazy. And he was talking about Scorsese and going, you know, obviously a very talented filmmaker, but just doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. So on on one level, if I was a film student, I'd give this 10 out of 10, because you go, wow, well, he is doing something different. I mean, gosh, I have to watch it 10 times to even understand it. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's the thing, you know, because as you say, you know, for Scorsese, you know, like every film is good if you like that sort of style of thing. So it really does push the boundaries. And I think that's sort of really sort of interests me that, you know, he's not, he doesn't get into a, uh, a thing and just does it over and over again. I think Ang Lee is another filmmaker who, uh, mm, you know, constantly. Yeah. And now in one of his interviews, he's, when he's talking about he doesn't really like film, even though he's a filmmaker, his favourite uh, art form is painting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about your painting because yep. you have been known to pick up a brush and maybe even trouble the Archibald <laughs> jury. Correct. So, look, I I suppose I painted through school and I sort of stopped when I fe- finished school and I started again about 15 years later and I started painting in oils, never formally trained, uh, although I did go to a guy's garage once a week uh, and learn how to painting. And I suppose my painting was very much... I never really had a style. I said to the teacher, I want a style. He said, mate, don't get a style. Just keep on painting all this collective stuff because when you have a show, it will be, you know, if you do one style, people either love it or hate it, you know, and there's no in between. You do lots of different stuff, a little bit like Greenaway. You know, you'll, you'll find that, you know, it'll sell better. 
And so I just sort of followed my heart and did that and it worked. I I did, uh, and I've been boring my friends with the story for the last 20 odd years that I was a finalist in the Archibald Prize. It's actually a happy, sad story. The painting was a tribute to a very good friend of mine who had passed away the year before. You can't do a portrait of someone posthumously. So I did a painting of one of his artists. He was a gallery owner. One of his artists, who happened to be the head of Queensland College of Art, Moston um, Bramley Moore, reading the newspaper, which was the Australian, which had a big photo of Michael uh, on his obituary in the Australian. And so it was a tribute to him, a double portrait. So it was really amazing to be able to give that tribute to him. Mind you, he would have never shown me because I was seen as a decorative artist and he was very sort of cutting edge. So he probably rolled in his grave when he when he heard but something very interesting happened. I was there and I was with all the artists uh, at the launch. Anyway, we all went to the pub and everyone, all the artists were drawing each other on napkins, doing these self-portraits. And at that time, I was actually doing a project where I was drawing two portraits a day, a self-portrait and a portrait of a friend. Every day? Every day, two portraits. And I was so intimidated by all these you know, famous artists that I stopped on that day. I didn't partake and I stopped. And I, when I, you know, teach people about creativity and trying to get them to, you know, catch in their own essence, you know, I share that story because even I, who was hanging the Archibald Prize, clearly an artist, was intimidated because, you know, I thought creativity was relative and I try to teach people that creativity is not relative. It doesn't matter how creative they are, you know, I have my own creative essence. So I have to ask, so, so you didn't do it in the pub, but did you then stop I stopped, yeah, yeah, I stopped, I stopped wow. the project. I've got a picture for you. In your honour, because we've spoken before, and you say you draw people when you're talking to them, I stopped around the corner before this interview, and I was in the cafe, and I thought, well, I'm interviewing Paul, so I will sketch the bloke who's opposite me, right? And, then, and, and that's the Fantastic. picture. Yeah, but he looked up. <laughs> and it, it is obviously him. And so I sort of, you know, packed my bags and left the cafe. I, thought, <laughs> I do it a bit more now. But no, I stopped the project. It was really, really crazy. I still got the two books. I didn't actually even finish the books. So uh, it was very strange. That, that, that's a wonderful story. I mean, I, I, I try and put pencil to paper every day. I mean, even literally, if it's drawing a stupid cartoon you know, of a rugby player or something, I just try and just make a mark. Mm -hmm. Um, We're moving on to your second choice, and Mm -hmm. uh, I am very much less conflicted about this choice. Not that we're not judgmental on Five My Life. Uh, Apparently not. Not not very. Um, But you've chose a book that I'd never heard of, and and, and lots of my guests choose books that are incredibly famous, and I've never bloody heard of them. So it's it's wonderful. I've basically read a hundred books I wouldn't otherwise have read uh, you've chosen all i really need to know i learned in kindergarten uh, published in 1986 written by robert fulgham could you uh describe it and tell us why you've chosen it on five my life how do i describe it uh, look it, it's it's a, a sort of a vignette sort of memoir of sorts the reason i chose it was uh as i've been writing my book one of my editors said to me, you should read Robert Fulgham. And in fact, when you asked me, you know, for my book, I thought about you in, in, in your series of books and I thought it might resonate with you as well, but not the reason I chose it. But I just think that uh, his use of language, you know, and the way that he tells stories and the self-deprecation and the way that he always ends them, you know, coming back to something is really fantastic. And it's one of a series of books and a lot of the stories get all mixed up in my head about which came from which book. Uh, so I was prompted to reread it because I was coming on today and I'd forgotten about his credo at the beginning. And so he, he has this credo, which is about 
the lessons he learned at kindergarten. And then he has another chapter about looking at, you know, his broader life as an adult in the world and politics and nations and what they would learn from the things that he learned at kindergarten. And it's quite interesting because there's quite a few things that he talks about in there which relate to my five of my life, <laughs> right? <laughs> which we can which we can talk about uh, as we go through. But he um, he just has this amazing use of language, and what I love about him is he's also quite eclectic. He's a Baptist minister or was a Baptist minister. He lives in sort of middle America, but he has a house on an island in Greece where he spends six months a year. So he's really sort of unusual person. And in one of his books, he, he subtitles it Stories, Observations and Affirmations. And I think that sort of really sums it up. But what I particularly love, except for that sort of second chapter about the deep kindergarten learnings, how it might apply to, to, the, to the world and nations and politics and leaders, he has a story at the end of one of his books about a woman who rented his, his place in Greece on the island. And she left him a note and said, look, you know, thank you, you know, for the pleasure of being here and I absolutely loved it. It was so fantastic and I love your books. But I'm wanting to know why you don't use that talent to write about bigger issues in the world. And, and he wrote back to her and he wrote in his book, he said, because that's not what I do. <laughs> he said, I'm passionate about the big issues and I go to demonstrations and I, you know, I fund things and whatever. But what I do is I write about the minutiae of life uh, and there's little observations and I find the humour in it and that is just what I do. And that to me is just, you know, such a strong message about, you know, it's okay, you know, just to do <laughs> what you do and do it well. And one of the things was he was talking and it relates back to the um, hangman's cricket. He's talking about playing games with his, with his grandchildren as a child and one of these says, you know, hide and seek is a, is a game that, you know, he says it's overrated because there's always one kid that hides too well and, and never comes out until the end and they get very mad and they get mad at him for hiding too well and blah, 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 blah. But he said he prefers a game called sardine, which I've never heard about before. And he said what it is is that the person that's it goes and hides and then everyone spreads out to find that person. And when that person's found that you get in the cupboard with them, and then the next person until everyone's crammed in and, and then they all start giggling and then they all get found, which I thought was just so fantastic. And it's, that's the way he twists so many things. It goes to the power of a title. I don't know if you've got a title for your, uh, the book that you're writing, but the, a bit like Desperate Housewives as, as a TV show. You go, it doesn't matter if it's utter rubbish. The first season's going to be a success because, you, you, know, you know, that's, that's you know, that's a friend who wrote a book called Shakespeare's Wife. And you go, well, there you go. That's a bestseller before you've even started. Yeah, and yeah. So, so the notion of all the things that you need in life you were taught in kindergarten is a brilliant notion and a brilliant uh, title. You, you yeah, know, put things yeah. back where you found them. Don't punch people. You know, be yeah. polite. Wash your hands, blah, blah, blah. But so the book is funny and charming, uh, variable. Some, some chapters don't age very well. But there's, there's two quotes from it. I think it's quite wise. There's two quotes that I wouldn't mind um, getting your thoughts on. That I, I mean, I, I, like you, I made lots of marks throughout the book. But the first one, let's find it here. Uh, I, I love it. At the end of a chapter, he says, uh, here we go. Keep your eyes open. Suspend judgment. Be useful. <laughs> I mean, isn't that great? Yes, yes. I mean, yes. You, you, it's not 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 bad, not bad life advice. How are you on the judgmental scale? Uh, look, I try not to be, and I think as I age, I'm getting less judgmental. Uh, but uh, 
yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in the middle. Uh, There's the, the second quote that I love, and again, it's the end of another chapter. It's sort of like the little, you know, nuggets of wisdom. Uh, and this is written in when it was 86, uh, so, but it's pretty relevant to, to, you know, the times that we're living in now. Speed and efficiency do not always increase the quality of life. Yes, yes. I, I, actually, I actually highlighted that one myself. That, that is so true, and especially as, you know, the world gets, you know, crazy and crazier. And there is another one that he talks about uh, where he talks about the information and the overload of information. Now, God, that was 40 years ago, 45 years ago. I wonder what his take on it would be now. The other thing I like about the book, he wrote it when he was 65, and I'm 64, so I, I sort of like, I like that. Well, he put it together, I think, obviously a series of articles that he had. And I don't know if you remember the one about Donnie, who was a little kid that was deaf, that came to rake his leaves. Um, and he had this whole thing about he likes leaves in the garden because, you know, it's a natural process, but he like, his wife doesn't. So he agrees to rake half and not the other half, but it's too complicated to tell the deaf kid. So the deaf kid rakes the whole thing up. <laughs> and, and, he, and his idea was he's going to spread it out to, back to half. And he says he can't undo the, you know, the good work, so he puts it on the compost. But then he said people often ask me about Donnie. And he said, well, Donnie went on, you know, he got married, had a family, and he started a business. And he has a horticultural business that specialises in trees. <laughs> <laughs> but there's another series of stories that does, he does in some of his later books, which you know, we obviously don't have time to talk about, but it's about whether you're a player or not. And they, they're so fantastic. And it's this whole thing about you know, putting something out in the world, you know, a comment, and whether people ignore you or get aggressive or play along. Uh, well, and look, there is one. I think the best one is, and it's in a second book. He tells the story of going to the printers and the printer um, didn't have his thing ready for like the third time. And so he said to the young girl, he said, look, if you can give me the best excuse you can come up with, uh, I'll go away and come back tomorrow. I won't make a fuss. And she went, oh. And she walked away and started talking to her manager and he says, not a player. And they have this conversation in the background. And she comes back uh, and the manager comes over and says, sir, it's not very well known, but we're a front for the IRA uh, and we're doing a stock, stock take of our um, ammunitions and we're missing a bazooka and so all hell has broke loose. Um, so we think we'll have it sorted today. So if you don't mind, if you come back tomorrow, uh, we'll have it ready. And he goes, a major player after all. <laughs> that reminds me of a story. Oh, my God. One of my first bosses in an advertising agency... <laughs> in uh, in london uh used to work in his uh his father's furniture floor tile shop and a uh, an old lady came in and said i'd like some lino for my back passage and he said certainly madam bend over and i'll measure you up <laughs> <laughs> i'm going blimey david how did that go down and he said it was fine so clearly she was a player as well and he was a player but yeah, yeah. I think you, you've got to be careful because sometimes it can clang and and offend, especially in the, in this in this day and age. But a sort of a a zest for life and a Somerset Maugham said that the best attitude for life is sort of humorous resignation. Is is you know everything you know we're only here for a brief bit before we uh, we join a, a permanent dirt nap. You might as well have a smile on your face and a smile in your mind. Correct. Correct. <laughs> Your song that will be added to the Five My Life uh, Spotify 
playlist. Um, wonderful. 1972. We're moving from the 80s to the 70s. Uh, stuck in the middle with you from Steelers Wheels' eponymous debut album. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Great song. Tell us why you've chosen it on Five My Life. Look, I love this song. I just love the sound of it. You know, it's just got this, you know, I have my feet tapping. I, I suppose in some ways that, that really gross scenes from Reservoir Dogs where they play the song is spoiled, spoiled a little bit for me. You know, it's like when I sort of try not to imagine that when I listen to the song of that, that bit. But um, I really like the song also because of the lyrics. You know, it's that whole thing of being stuck in the middle and not so much about the clowns and the fools, but I am a middle child. And so I have all those traits. I have two older brothers and two younger sisters. Well, I'm actually fourth born. So my mother had a, uh, this, her second born died about 10 hours after he was born, which, you know, it was obviously incredible sad. But what, what is even sadder is, um, you know, back in those days, they didn't let mum see um, mm. the baby, which was called Patrick. And my mum's 92 now. And um, I, th- I think she still mourns him. Mm. You know, as kids, we had this thing, we were brought up quite strict Catholics. And so we had our own St. Patrick, uh, which was pretty, you know, good. Not that we're Irish, but we had our own St. Patrick. But it's that thing for me about being, you know, stuck in the middle. You know, it really resonates with me. And and the other thing that I, I really like about it, you know, it's it's often derided as being, you know, yet another one-hit wonder. And I think, oh, my God, you know, like, to have one hit, you know, that it, that is, you know, lasted for you know for over fifty years. How incredible is that? You know, I'd be very happy with that. You know, I, I I'd be very happy to hang up my shingle on one hit. And so yeah, so I just I really love it. I just love the sound. It's on one of my it's on one of my playlists that you know I play before I get up and speak. So that, that's your pre-performing ritual. Yeah, pre-performing ritual. Listen to uh, listen to uh, some music. But that whole thing about, you know, doing one thing well, which is something that Robert Fulgram also talks about, and his was about doing the, doing the folding, you know. He says, you know, I'm really good at folding. And he said, I'm really happy with that. Um, so but when he did the folding, he stuck all the socks and things onto his body for the static electricity because he loves the static electricity. <laughs> and at one stage got the whole laundry basket stuck to himself and went in to show his grandchildren uh, to make them laugh. A player. So the, the, the song Jerry Rafferty is, is quoted in a couple of interviews saying it was actually inspired by and a tribute to Billy Colony, which I had no oh. idea. They, they used no, to be in a band yeah. together. Yeah. A couple of questions for you is who uh, inspires you? But also talk to me about partnerships. Look, someone who really has inspired me over time is Buckminster Fuller. You know, he designed the geodesic dome. He's like the, the, the godfather of sustainability. But really amazed me, he was an architect and engineer and a great thinker. And he basically was depressed. And he literally, as a fairly young man, went to a, a cliff and he was going to end his life. And he went, he just had this sort of epiphany. He went, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to save the world. He, you know, but he was really amazing. And he designed this car called the Dymaxia car, which is this big, like extended uh, combi van with three wheels, which is apparently very dangerous and killed a couple of people. <laughs> But he was very experimental. So Buckminster Fuller was a great, uh, a great hero of mine. In terms of partnerships, I've had a lot of very successful partnerships. Um, and I think partnerships are a part and parcel of my life. The problem I have with partnership is knowing when their lifespan has come to a successful end. So I've had some 
some difficult partnerships and it's because they went on too long. I have, a, I've coined a phrase, how collaboration often turns out for me, which is collaboration, uh, which is someone <laughs> that's pretending, you know, to collaborate, but just want to get their own way. And in architecture, you know, there's a lot of ego. And so it's, it's really has been, you know, uh, I, I built a very big, big business, which was based on a very successful partnership to start with that became difficult. Because I think that you know people grow apart and they have different different um, uh, ambitions and we tend to hang on to them. But you know I have I've had a partnership for three years with um, Chris Meredith, as you know, on our podcast, The Common Creative, and we do some work together. That's a fantastic uh, partnership. But over the years, I've had lots of different partnerships. I did a series of cane furniture called Cello, C H E W O. One inspired, the most famous one inspired by Lunix, Mr. Curly. It's called the Mr. Curly Chair. And that was with a, uh, a wicker worker that was a, a young brother of a friend of mine. And we'd be at the pub and I'd be saying, you know, he's working for a mob that sort of did AMART furniture. I said, you've got to do something better. And one day he said, well, you know, put your money where your mouth is and, you know, give me some designs. And so I, I did these little sketches and I sent them off to him. And a week later he calls me and says, the chair's done. And I was just giving him an idea, and I and I thought I had to scale it up, and I mean he just scaled it off a drawing, and, and so it was not quite exactly how I expected, but it was so fantastic, and we made, he made about thirty or forty of them, and and, and look at it, it never turned into a business, and you know, and it just faded away, which was fine. So I think it's really valuable, especially for me, you know, I'm a creative, I am a doer, but I have ma- many more ideas than I can do, and I need people that can both filter. And then, and then action uh, to make things happen. Well, it's the perfect link when you're talking about uh, creativity and being a doer, because oh, your fourth choice on Five My Life is the place, and you've chosen uh, the day bed in your studio. <laughs> could you could you describe it first of all, and then tell us your story on Five My Life? Well, look, it's just a it's one of the kids' old be- beds actually, and it's upstairs. I have a two story studio, and it's upstairs, and it's just a bed. Uh, and occasionally, you know, it will be uh, it will be a guest bed for the itinerant that sort of comes through. What what I like about it is is a couple of things. One is, you know, for a long time, I I didn't admit that I took a nap when I did take a nap. And I suppose the first time I started napping, I dropped out of university in second year and I travelled up North Queensland and I ended up picking tobacco. And for a few weeks, I worked for an Italian, a very Italian family. And because I was friends with friends and how I got the job, I got to eat this very traditional lunch with them. And then they took a, a nap, a siesta. And I, there was another farm I worked for, an Australian farm, who didn't do that. You know, so I sort of first got that experience you know, in, in a real sort of almost you know, in, in a traditional Italian way. In the last few years, I've started doing it and, and, and owning it because I get up quite early and I go to bed quite early. But there's a part to it as well, which is not only just about refreshing. I don't know if you've ever read the book uh, Rest by um, Alex Sujun Kim Pang. Uh, And it's a fantastic book. And it looks at all the famous people in the world about how their day went and how rest comes into it. But he talks particularly about uh, Hans Searle, who's a psychologist who is seen as the the grandfather of psychology about stress and new stress. Um, But he basically did a thing where he describes when he was waking slowly uh, for there's like about half an hour where he'd be having a discussion or a conversation between his conscious and unconscious self. And 
and I, to me, that was like, oh my God, that's how I wake up. You know, I'm not one of these people that, you know, just, oh, I'm awake, you know, let's get going. And so I realized, and I, I basically took that and that's how I best write. So I sort of lie in bed for half an hour, dreaming, sleeping, sleep, thinking, dreaming, sleeping, and really writing in my head. And if I can get up and go straight to the computer, I can just you know, knock out 500 words without even thinking about it. So having the afternoon nap in the studio in a, in a proper, you know, on a proper bed allows me to do that. But I also just read the first 10 minutes of when you're going to sleep has the same thing. So a 20-minute or 30-minute nap, you get these two 10-minute things of where you're going to sleep and waking, where you're, where, where you're thinking, and then you can get up and, and, and do some productive work. So that's why I like it, you know, and I thought of lots of different places. But there's just that thing of, you know, I just love, you know, it's a little bit decadent, but I just go up there and I have my half-hour nap, and I, and I love it. I'm so pleased to hear you say that because I, I have nana naps as I'm calling them and I'm told I should call them power naps but now I'm going to use use your justification for, for knocking out a few zeds in the middle of the day now now you're on a mission Paul to get people to reconnect with their creative essence which I think is just fantastic is we're all born I, I believe we're all born creative and then we have the the snot beaten out of us by schools and institutions and families they don't do it on purpose but I mean I thought your story about being intimidated in the pub and then putting the pen down. That is just, that, that's one of the best stories on Five My Life. Wow, what, what a lesson. Uh, so would you mind talking a little bit about your creative mission and how you sort of recommend that people get started? The first step is to understand, you know, what creativity is and what it isn't. And the first thing we sort of talked about it, people mistake uh, artistry for creativity and that's why, and they, and they make it relative. So people say, I'm not creative you know, because I'm not art, artistic. And so the first thing is, and I try to, when I, when I, when I teach people, is to understand that, that it's, only, it's only a small part of it. The second thing then is once they understand that and hopefully accept it, is to then, it's slightly con- contradictory, to say, well, it's actually artistry is a great stepping stone into creativity. But to be able to practice in the safety of your home, you have to show money anybody, you know, you can just do it. Because, you know, like you say, you do a drawing every day. People say, I can't paint, I can't draw, but actually picking up a pencil and running across the paper is the act of drawing. And the same thing with painting, you know. You might not be able to paint what you consider, you know, subjectively well, but everyone can paint. And it's what we do as a kid, you know, we, we express ourselves. So I think the, the first thing to do is to, is to look at your childhood. You know, what are those things that you did unconsciously? You didn't really think about it. You had no judgment. And there wasn't that judgment that came in when you hit puberty. You know, was it drawing or, you know, was it building things or whatever it might be? And, and start there just to, to get the creative juices going. What I do now, and, and, and it's interesting, you know, and, I, and, and it's taken me a long time. And besides the story of um, the Archibald, when I first started my practice in 1991, and I started this practice in the middle of the recession, because I had no other option. I could not get a job. I had six grand in the bank. I had no assets except a 1959 black DS Citroen, no credit card, and I had six grand. And basically, I had no work for six months. At the end of six months, 
uh, I had no money. I had no credit card. I used to go to parties, walk to parties, steal beers, walk home. Um, <laughs> you know, I literally had, had had no cash. And then I got a big job and then my practice, you know, went from there to about 60 people. But in that six months when I had no work, I also rented almost nothing, the whole floor of this building in the city as an art studio. And I had a telephone line that went up, was before mobile phones, went up the, the light well upstairs. But, you know, I wouldn't go up there and paint because I felt it wasn't work, you know. Right. And I felt I had no architectural work to do. All I could do was sit at, sit and look at the phone, hoping that it would ring uh, and trying to call some people. But I still, I didn't have that confidence, you know, to go on being creative. What happened was when I started painting and then I started exhibiting, the reverse happened for me because when people found out that, you know, I knew a lot of people by that stage through architecture, they all wanted a piece of me. So I sold lots and lots of art because I knew so many people. Back to your question. So what do I do? And again, you know, from my courage, I've only recently, I've been doing this work for many years, I've started getting people to do a watercolour in the masterclasses that I do. And I, and I teach them how to paint a lemon. And the reason I do that is because you'll end up with either a painting of a lemon or a lemon of a painting, uh, but either which, you know, and most often I frame them, which improves them by about 57%. Uh, makes them look look a lot better, uh, and people just like you know they're blown away because most of these people haven't picked up a paintbrush since they're a kid, you know. And and I can show them how to do it, and it becomes quite a respectable thing. But it took a long time for me to have the courage to go. This is what we're going to do. It's just part of a process that works in with my thinking framework to get people to really focus on what in front what's in front of them. To do a painting, you have to look. You know, you have to look at that guy with the curly hair and the image that you showed me earlier. So, yeah, so I, I, I just encourage people to, you know, take a step, whether it's drawing, picking up a guitar, just take a step. I think this is quite profound where you go, the, the, the sort of the paradox of creativity doesn't mean you're going to paint an Archibald winner. It doesn't mean you're Michelangelo. It doesn't, it's not about art. Art is a subset of creativity Correct. and being creative is part of what it is to be human and we should all access and nurture that but having said that it's a brilliant doorway to accessing creativity I think Correct. that's what a lesson on five months that's absolutely brilliant so I read a quote somewhere uh, it was about jogging is you don't jog to get somewhere I mean, you end up back home for Christ's sake, right? So the point of the jog isn't to get somewhere, right? The point is, whatever it is, the exercise saying hello to the trees and the birds, yeah? Is, it, unless you are an exhibiting artist, I don't draw. I mean, I've shown you the sketch I did this morning, but no one yeah. will ever see that. I'll probably throw it away in 10 minutes, right? Is the point of that wasn't the picture. It was accessing, noticing, and seeing, and being creative, it just accesses a different part of your brain and a different attitude and makes you open to things and think in a different way. And you go, wow. So don't draw because you're then going to show it, you know, to the world. Just draw because it, it helps. Recently, I was reading this thing that says that, that more than 50% of our brain is dedicated to visual cognition. And the brain doesn't actually recognize words. You know, there's no part of our brain, you know, whilst we have language centers that actually recognize words and it actually reads them as miniature pictures every letter is a picture you know a picture is worth a thousand words because exactly that so to communicate with with images does open up other pathways and i there's an exercise i do which is about drawing that often gets people to have these revelations you know with themselves you know and if they had done it with saying look you know describe this or describe that or write a list it doesn't have the same effect 
So I think, you know, and it comes back to doodling and this whole thing about, about doodling and opening up the default network. And that's really an amazing thing itself. So, so I, I say to people who's creative and no one puts their hand up, mind you, that's after I've showed them my creative credentials. I do that on purpose to show them that it's not relative. But then even when we go through that, I says, who doodles here? And most people put their hand up and I go, well, that's creative. <laughs> yeah. That's drawing. And they go, you know, oh, I said, you know, I didn't think that. So I think doodling is also a very good, um, very good pathway. You know, so I think I think people should, and businesses should encourage more doodling. Show me your doodle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you and I are um, brothers from another mother when it comes to the um, the joys and the benefits of drawing. Um, your fifth and last choice on Five My Life. It's always the possession, and it sounds like an Italian beer, but I I'm assuming <laughs> it's actually a boat. It's Peroni. Justify yourself, fair weather. Prioni is my uh, 16 foot timber scruffy. It's an open, it's an open boat, a balanced lug rig, which sort of looks a little bit like a, a gaff rig. It was, it's a kit boat that I bought from a guy about 10 years ago that had built it about 25 years ago, and it's just great. Now I sailed as a kid in dinghies and things, and I wanted this uh, a boat that was a, a, an open boat. So it doesn't have a cockpit. Um, so when I bought this boat, I actually had another boat, which was a little 12-foot timber boat called a Puffin, and my wife hated it. And so when I bought a second boat, uh, she was quite displeased. But uh, it's one of the very rare occasions in my marriage when we went up to Noosa and we had the canopy and we went out for a sunset or to the, out to the sandbank to a sundowner. She said to me, she said, Paul, this boat is great. I give an unreserved apology. Ah. <laughs> I love this boat. Um, because I have a, a small motor, it doesn't need to be registered. And I can get six adults and four children on it. I can sail with four adults, you know, quite, quite nicely. But when I bought it, the name was Prion, uh, P-R-I-O-N, which is a small seabird. And you're not supposed to change boats' names, but I actually restored it. I renovated it. I painted it and got new sails and stuff. And my mother-in-law, who's Italian, said that you put a lot of you into it, so you should Italianize and add an I. So I added an I to the end because prion is also the mutated gene or protein that causes mad cow disease. So so I Italianized it by adding a bit of me to it to make it prioni. Now you you, meant, you mentioned kids there. Is uh, how many have you got? And describe uh, describe to me. I think I think you came to fatherhood slightly later in life than than some. Describe Correct, yes. how how you you found and are finding that process. Look, okay. So I got married when I was forty five and had uh, Nicholas, who's now seventeen, and then my daughter, who was born when I was fifty, is now thirteen, turning fourteen this month. I think the only downside to it has been is. As you know, life speeds up as we get older. So whilst I, you know, had that 17 years with my children, it probably, you know, in relative times, it probably still feels like half the time if I'd had them when I was, you know, 20. So the notion that you are probably less juvenile, more responsible, more calm as a dad, but those 17 years went by in a flash. That is a um, that is the only downside. You know, the reason that it happens is because. We consider our life as a whole. So one year, when we're one year, is one whole of our life. But when we're, you know, fifty, it's only a fifty for our life. Ah, right. Because yep. we, we don't think of it, you know, like a long life or short life. It's just a life. So, so that's that's why it is. 
But I just wanted to go back. I just there's one more story I want to tell you about my my Priani, my boat. When I bought it, I actually put an ad out looking for this specific boat because I knew this boat and I wanted to get this boat. I didn't have the time as a young a young a dad of young children to to build this boat myself. Anyway, this guy rang me up and said, "Paul, I, I think I've got the boat that you want." You know, I went, okay, you know, this is the boat you're looking for. And he, and he said, I said, oh, great, you know, and he, he talked it up. And he said, I built it with my daughter and my dad, and it's very special to me. And you know, here we go. And he told me the price, and I couldn't believe it. I thought, my that's, God, that's fantastic, you know. I'll take it. And this is why I bought it without selling my other boat. And he was up at, at North Queensland, uh, not Queen, uh, Gladstone. It's about a five-hour drive from here. And he said, look, I'm coming down in January. I'll bring it down to you. I said, look, I really want it for the December holidays. I'll come up. And, you know, he goes, oh, look, it's a long way. So I'll tell you what, he said, I'll meet you at Childers. I'm on holidays. So I'll meet you at Childers, which is halfway, that three-hour drive. So I drive up there, and he said, we'll meet in the cafe. And I see the boat in the car park, and we go in. I'm sitting there with the cafe, and like, would you like a cup of tea? And I'm just wanting to see this boat, you know. And we're having a chat, you know, a bit like five of my life, and we're having a chat. And then, you know, we, we, we finish, you know, and he goes, okay, we'll go out and look at the boat now. And we go and look at the boat, and he talks me through it, and I give him the check and stuff. He said, I've got to tell you one thing. He said, the reason I wanted to meet you was because you know, this boat is special for me. And if you're a dickhead, I wasn't going to give it to you. <laughs> ah, okay. So, so he said, you're not a dickhead. And so and I, stayed, I stayed in contact with him. And when I did it up, I, got him, I invited him down to come and have a look at it. And uh, he was very happy. So it was really, uh, really, really a special thing. So I have this connection with, with him about that boat. Do you know, I, I, I love that. I'm glad you told that, that uh, last story because... In the main, I, you know, I'm not not attached to, you know, possessions. I'm, that's just not me. I'm not really material. But you can imbue objects with meaning. Uh, and so I've got a little pebble I picked up in a on a riverbed in Austin, Texas at a very important time of my life that literally is worth nothing. I mean, I mean I've actually got it in my pocket now. But but it means it, it means the world to me. I mean, it, it it's just so I can understand. I like that bloke thinking, although it's just a boat and I need the money, uh, I, I'll not have the money if, if you're an hat because yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I care for the boat. <laughs> well, actually, as I'm talking to you, the, the, this pen that I'm holding up, I mean, it's a Parker pen. It would be worth, I don't know, 30 cents, but, but it's from my dad. Like so that, I would yeah, yeah. I would rather this pen than a you know Prada Mont Blanc blah 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 yeah, because yeah, this yeah. one you know reminds me of my dad, um, mate. You've been an absolute legend to come on Five of My Life and and, and I, I uh, for many reasons thank you, but uh, in particular because I've now got justification for my afternoon snoozes. <laughs> oh, just wonderful. But before I let you go, you have to answer the six. Uh, traditional question on Five My Life, uh, which is who would you like to hear next on Five My Life and why? My podcast partner, Chris Meredith. <laughs> I, I think I think you can put me in touch with him. <laughs> I can put you in touch with him because uh, Chris is a uh, he's been a, a great uh, supporter and I've had a great partnership with him. And, and uh, when I told him I was on, he said, oh. Am I on it? I'm going, well, did you ask to be on it? So, <laughs> so I, I would like to see Chris uh, on here as your next guest. So what I can do, I can mess with his mind and not let him. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's even better. <laughs> no, no, I, of course, I, I would be thrilled to have Chris on. And, and Paul uh, Fairweather, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your stories on Five of My Life. Thank you for having me, Nigel. It's been an absolute pleasure and a lot of fun. 
Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, 40 and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.